Good morning. I'm Clara. If you're new around here, I'm one of the folks that teaches here. And I'm excited to be with y'all. Okay, so let's see if we can do a little survey here. Uh, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, Tiger Woods, Billy, Bill Cosby. Anybody know what these four people have in common? Do you really want to say, okay, well, they all have a very publicized uh, sex scandal issue, right? Okay. I mean, you didn't want to say that. Um, which definitely has affected their career and uh, their reputation and, um, you know, caused problems and pain for their family and um, friends that were close to them. But, you know, uh, having problems with sex is not an issue just related to entertainers and politicians. We also see that uh, we find people like um, Jim Baker, Jimmy Swagger, um, Billy Graham's grandson just last month, Tulian. He was a senior pastor of a mega church in Florida, just recently confessed um, adultery. And, you know, he reported to the Washington Post that... Um, his wife had gotten into an affair, and so he sought out some comfort in a relationship, and the relationship went inappropriate. You know, we live in a culture and in a time where sexuality is a problem, a, a significant problem. You know, just uh, if you look at the, the records on Internet right now, there's 5 million websites that are labeled porn. That's 12% of all that's out there in the website are pornographic materials. And so, anyway, it is a problem, and we know that. And then just last month, uh, June 26, the United States Supreme Court saying the same sex can be married in any state. So this is a relevant issue for us. Now, we have been this summer on a series from Wisdom, from the book of Proverbs, which is a book in the Old Testament. And we're looking at life skills. We're looking to see what wisdom there is within that book for us today. And there's really a lot of relevant information in there. I mean, if you look at, if you've been reading Proverbs along this summer, you're going to find information on marriage and singleness. You're going to find information on parenting, on fidelity, infidelity, poverty, wealth, health, sickness, sexuality. And it's very relevant for our life today, even though it's as old of a book as it is. So anyway, this morning, we're going to be talking about being wise sexually. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I know this is a difficult topic, and I'm thankful that you broached the topic often in your word because you knew it was going to be a big deal for us, for every culture and every society. And Holy Spirit, you have been talking to the church about this for centuries. We want to be attentive to you, Holy Spirit. And now, Father, I pray that you would bind any um, spirit of resistance to what you might be saying this morning. That we would honor your word, honor your spirit, and honor your voice. Lord, I pray for a spirit of mercy. So thankful we sang that song this morning. Your mercy made me whole. And your mercy is an invitation this morning to us to make us whole. 
And, Father, I pray that that which I share, Lord, would be cloaked with your mercy and your love and your truth. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay. Oh, there was one quote I wanted to quote this morning. Let's, let's go back to that quote. This quote is written by a 20, uh, let's go to the quote. It's written by a 21-year-old law student at Harvard. Very intelligent man. Um, by age 16, he was already done with uh, college. Anyway, here is his quote in the book called Porn Generation. My generation is totally saturated with pornography. The teen pop industry is geared and focused on sexualizing girls at the earliest possible age. Forget singing, songwriting, or even basic musical talent. Sex is now the driving force in pop music aimed at 9- to 12-year-old girls. Hot young stars often begin as virgins to solidify their adolescent girl base and then move on to semi-sexuality, emerge into fragrant sexuality or even promiscuity. And then for the extra edgy hipness, add a tang of bisexuality. Now we're going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 together. Um, so let's get there and we'll read that out loud. And that's most of the passage we'll be looking at. We'll be looking at another part later. Proverbs 5. There we go. Okay, let's read that out loud together. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought. There we go. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her path wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside but what I say. Now, I want to talk about four questions um, today, and by answering them, I think they will help us to be more sexually wise people. The first one is, how do we defend what we do sexually? The second one is, how far is okay? Can I go? The third one is, how do we say no to sexual sin? And the fourth one is, why say no anyway? Now, in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 5, we read, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Now, here's a dad who's really trying to safeguard his son from sexual sin. And it's possible that his son is recently married or definitely old enough to experience sexual temptation. Now, although this passage was written towards sons, everything in it is very applicable for uh, women and men. So we're going to take it as it being spoken to us. Question one. How do we defend what we do sexually? Now, first of all, we need to understand what is God's standard for sex. In the New Testament, there is a word that's particularly used called pornea, and it is a sin, pornea. And it's a Greek word, and it means uh, it's where we get our word pornography. But translated in the Bible, it is translated sexual sin. And it basically includes any illicit uh, sexual activity. Now, there are a lot of verses in the New Testament that talk about sexual sin, but I particularly want to just look at Hebrews 13.4. Marriage should be honored by all. And marriage kept, the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, in the Bible, the basic rule for concerning sex 
is the only proper place for sex is in between a man and a woman in marriage, and everything else is forbidden. Now, right off the bat, you hear that, and every single person in this room gets on edge or may feel offended. A gay person will feel offended because, well, why can't I enjoy sex outside of a heterosexual marriage, especially after the laws that were done in June? A single person will be offended because, well, why can't I enjoy sex outside of marriage? And a married person can get offended because, you mean to tell me that I have to keep myself for this one person for the rest of my life and say no to everyone else? Now, none of us likes being told what the Bible standard is. We just don't like being told. But maybe you say, well, Claire, you know, really, none of those really offend me. I'm really okay with all of those. Well, how about this one, when Jesus said, no lust either? Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28, Jesus was quoted saying, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, or looks at a man lustfully, has already committed adultery with her or him in her or his heart. So no sex outside of marriage and no lusting after it either. Now there's two possible possibilities for us in our response to this word. One, all of us get down on our knees and we confess and repent for the ways that we have failed God in this, this sinful pattern. Or we can do the other thing because if the restriction is can't be outside of marriage and we can't lust, is to defend ourselves. Because you know what? We really like to feel good about ourselves. And so we tell ourselves, I'm really an okay person, even though I'm not following God's guideline. And so we rationalize what we think. And we want to feel good before God. And rationalization is an issue that we do in relationship to this sinful um, topic. No, it's not a sinful topic. It's a good topic. Now, there was a conversation, a question asked by a lawyer to Jesus. And from that question, Jesus responds by telling him the story of the Good Samaritan. And the question was this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, okay, now, you know, you've been to Sunday school your whole entire life. What did your teachers teach you? And so, well, you know, my Sunday school lesson, he starts to recite it. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's in the Luke passage about the same story that I wanted to show you how this lawyer, in asking the same question now, he's going to sidestep what God was saying to him, Jesus was saying. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This is from Luke chapter 10, verse 29. And what the lawyer is doing with, is what many of us do in life when we're confronted with something that we are failing in or we're resisting that God is asking us to do. Because we want to feel good about ourselves. We're not like so-and-so that you know, does those really, really bad things. And so what we do is we redefine the standard. We argue why the standard doesn't apply to us. I'm the exception to the rule. Or we explain why what we're doing isn't exactly violating the standard. We're okay. Now, here are some of the rationalizations that I have heard as a parent, as a friend, and as a pastor. Everybody is doing it. 
God's standard is too unrealistic in our time and in our culture. This is the way God has made me. I've gone too far. There's no way to turn around now. And I've heard people rationalize about the things that they call entertainment and what they view and put in their eyes. I'm not affected by watching sexually explicit movies. I can look at porn on my computer and not be bothered by it at all. We lie to ourselves and we say watching sexual activity on the screen doesn't bother my soul. I'm not acting on the things I watch. I don't have a compromised view about men or women or marriage. Now, we understand what rationalization is like. You know, I had a married woman come to me and say to me, Clara, I don't know how it happened. I was just going to have lunch with him once. And then I ended up going to his apartment to look at his collection, and then I just never intended this to happen. So Proverbs is going to give us some wisdom, and we're going to look at, begin to unpack what that might look like. Verses 2 to 4. Now here we see a father talking and conversing, and he's saying, you know, the way you talk with one another is contributing to your sexual brokenness. Verses 2. That you may maintain discretion, your lips may preserve knowledge. Verses 3 to 4. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. And the father is saying, you know, the way you talk to one another may not be all that discreet or wise, and so let's talk about what that might look like. How would a wise person speak to one another? You know, are you talking with people that you might um, be romantically inclined to and shouldn't be about sexual things? Verses 3 and 4, the father talks about seductive speech. If we want to become sexually wise people, we have to talk about the lies we listen to and the lies that we tell one another about sex. If we don't, we're going to continue to live under the illusion that we are really moral people really holding up the standard of God when actually we're not. So what are some of those things? First of all, there are the lies we tell before sex and the lies we tell after sex. This is a common one that I've heard before sex. We're just friends. And when I hear that, you know what? My radar goes up. And I would like you all for your radars to go up when you hear that or when you say that. Now, there's nothing wrong with having someone from the opposite sex to have a good friendship with them. But we need to know this basic rule about human nature, that as we share intimately and as we give understanding and attention to one another, there is this natural dynamic that happens that draws people together. That's why marriages, you need to be talking You need to be sharing vulnerably. You do that outside the context of marriage with someone that you should not be, then that is going to happen. And, you know, um, there's a lot right now out there about Bill Cosby. And I I looked at some of the interviews, and I just was shocked. He was very bold to say, I use this technique to seduce vulnerable women. He gave them attention, understanding, and empathy. And then a little bit of drugs helped. When we share emotionally with one another, there is a connection that naturally occurs between people. When we share our hurts, our fears, 
our futures, dreams, our sexual past particularly, our human nature is going to draw those people together. I met with a young lady just this last week. She doesn't come to our church. So you don't have to try to figure out who she is. And she doesn't understand why her dating relationship is constantly plagued with sexual activity. And then she proceeded to tell me how when she was at a Bible study, she just shared that problem with the guy. And then that guy felt like, well, wow, she shared, so I'm going to now share my sexual history with her. And I'm like, okay, so guess that's your next date. Now we need, I, I'm not being mean, sarcastic, condescending, any of that. I just my heart breaks for seeing this pattern and for us not knowing how it works or ignoring the fact of how it might work. Okay, let's see where am I. So when we share vulnerably like this with one another, for people who are off limits, for instance, you're a married person at work or you're a single person and you're talking that way to a married person or you're sharing that way to someone who's not of your faith. You're running the risk of creating emotional, illegal bonds between you. Now, you may think, I'm immune to this. I don't have that problem, never have. That would never happen to me. You know, as I think about that pastor and read that article about that pastor in Florida, I don't think he ever thought that sharing his sadness over his wife's adultery was going to lead him to his own affair with her. We are crossing boundaries when we do this. It may seem innocent at first, but it will escalate. And we lie to ourselves when we don't pause to notice, I'm thinking about that person a lot. And we can hardly wait to see them again. You know, people cross boundaries at church. They do it in a class. They do it at work. They say after work hours, they're working on a project, and it's after work hours, and they're working on the project, and all of a sudden they're sharing deeply things that they haven't even shared with their spouse yet. And she's so good at understanding and listening. So how do we know if we're in danger, that we're lying to ourselves about the nature of our relationship with someone who is to be off limits sexually? When we look forward to seeing that person, touching them, hugging them, sitting next to them, sharing sharing vulnerably with them, sharing in a way that is exclusive, like you wouldn't really want anybody else to hear what you're going to say to him or her. We bear our hearts and our feelings in a unique way. When our spouse or a close friend says, is there something going on between the two of you? And you get all defensive and you start accusing like, man, you're super sensitive and super superstitious. Just Relax. When you're not willing to cut off a relationship that a friend or a spouse says, I think there's something going on here. And we're going to know. She just doesn't understand. He doesn't understand our friendship. When the Holy Spirit is nudging you and he's saying, there's something going on and we ignore him, we might be crossing the line. Now, a second lie that we tell ourselves is this. I can handle this. There's nothing to this. This isn't going anywhere. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If we think we're standing firm, we should be careful that we don't fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. 
a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, Price says, I've never committed adultery. I never will. I'm not one of those kinds of people. What? You don't have the plumbing? You don't have passion? You don't have desire for intimacy? The kinds of things that we open the door to and compromise to without having boundaries are very powerful. We refuse to create boundaries in our relationships and what we watch on television or in movies because I'm above that temptation. If I'm not above that temptation, what makes you think you are? I know many of you respect me, you respect my marriage, but you need to understand I know myself. I'm not kidding. Jesus understood the nature of lust. We're not designed to carry lust. It is a toxic, it's a waste. It's like trying to put it in a container and say, well, I'm just going to keep this nice little radioactive light in me. And when I feel bored, I need a little zip or a little excitement in my life. And that's not the way lust works. It hides there and it doesn't stay in the container. It begins to leak out and leads us into emotional affairs and physical affairs. We cannot carry around lust and be okay with our soul. Now, if we don't clean it out, confess, repent, get healing, it eventually is going to leak out. And Jesus knew this. And so that's why he takes time to talk about lust, because he knows how it works. It was the Father's love that prompted Jesus to talk about it. It wasn't that, I want you all to feel bad. And I want you all to feel condemned and feel like you all deserve to go to hell. No. It was because he was talking to people that said, you know, we're so self-righteous. We're so pure. We so follow the law. We're such cool people. We're not like those people over there. And Jesus said, you know, uh, can we just talk about my standard? Could, could, we, could I show you how you're failing and why you need me as a Savior? It was his mercy. And it was the mercy of the Father In Proverbs 5, this both this way to his son, and really it is my mercy heart in speaking to you all this morning. Okay. Okay, so then let's talk about this. What is one of the lies that we say after sex? If I don't feel guilty, it's not wrong. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? You know, I think that we've done people a lot of disservice by communicating that you've got, you will feel bad whenever you sin. Not really. It feels kind of good. Anybody experienced that? Maybe not in the area of sex, but something else. You know you shouldn't eat another slice of chocolate, cake, but it sure tastes good, right? That's a, a silly one, right? It doesn't necessarily going to make you feel bad. When you sin, particularly if you do it over and over and over again, because what happens, we may intellectually know it's bad, but we wear down our intolerance to a particular sin when we continue to practice that sin. Eventually we get callous and there's this progression and I'm fine. No problem. Nothing wrong with that. Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And this is the progression of someone who's done repeatedly sinned 
and eventually it affects their soul and how they think. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, they gave them over, he gave them over to a deprived mind to do what ought not to be done. You know, the text of sexual wisdom is not how you feel about it after doing it. Because if we make choices to continue to harden our hearts against God and what he says about sexuality, if we continue to run our life the way we're going to run it, because, you know, God's not all that smart. He's not very PC. He's irrelevant. We run the risk in our life on our own. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, what does God know anyway? He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. You know, there are times as a parent, as a caregiver, as a pastor, we have to step aside and let our kids and our loved ones make the decisions they're going to make. We let them think that they are the center of the universe and they know more than God. It's a painful thing. Our hope is in that process that they'll come to their senses and realize this is craziness. This is damaging my soul, my life. I'm not God. I don't know what's best for me. I haven't written the, the rule book, and I don't have the right to change it. You know, we need the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to get free. What is our mission statement? We're a part of a great family of God who's seeking to be like Jesus in all things through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit for freedom. We need to be a church that's full of God's empowering presence, his mercy, to help one another get free. And we need God's word established in our hearts because there's constantly going to be counterfeits coming against what God's word says. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, God, what have you said about sexuality? And am I willing to surrender to your will and to your leadership? Now, the second line we tell after sex is, it's not wrong if I don't get pregnant. It's not wrong if I don't get a sexually transmitted disease. Now, out-of-wedlock pregnancy rate in 1960 was 10%. In 1980, 18%. Right now, this year in America, one out of two women under 30 that are giving birth are out of wedlock. That is crazy nuts. And the crazy part about it is secular sociologists have said that we can trace every social pathology to this one thing. Pregnancies out of wedlock. Pregnancies out of wedlock create poverty. Out of wedlock pregnancy, drug use. Out of wedlock pregnancy, domestic abuse. And out of wedlock pregnancy and dropping out of school. And obviously there's a link between having sex outside of marriage and catching a sexually transmitted disease. I mean, it's absolutely true. Over the last 15 years, 
certain types of STD have skyrocketed. You talk to any of the doctors that we have here, counselors that we have here, the cases, the chlamydia on its own is tripled. But even if we practice safe sex and don't get pregnant and don't get an STD, the rightness or wrongness of doing something sexually is not defined by technology. Technology cannot define to us what is moral or right or good for our souls. Science can only go so far. It can present for us what we can do, what the possibilities are, but not what we ought to do. Now, our government cannot tell us what is divinely right or wrong unless their standard is from the Bible. And so they can come up with all kinds of decisions that may or may not be moral. It can very much go against the wisdom of God and what he's told us is best for us. So to figure out what we ought to do, we have to submit to wisdom, God's wisdom. What does the Bible say? And secondarily, what has the Holy Spirit been telling the church for the last 2,000 years? We cannot ignore that. Technology can tell us what we can do, but not what we ought to do. Government can change any word in the Bible to mean whatever they want. It does not change what it meant for God then and what it means for us now. So, figuring out what we do need to do with right or wrong needs to be based from Scripture and based from what the Holy Spirit has been telling us for the last 2,000 years. Now, here's a final lie that I want to tell us that people say after having sex. It's not wrong if we're in love. So I just want to um, read three or describe three grids. This bar from John Piper's book called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. First grid, in a non-Christian relationship, if two consenting adults want to have sex and they have a private place to do that, then go ahead, let them do that. No level of commitments needed. Grid two, other couples say, well, so long as we're in love, so long as we're engaged, so long as we're semi-committed to one another, then we can have sex between one another. No problem. But this is what the biblical standard is. Grid three. Sex outside of heterosexual marriage puts us on a path away from God. We're turning our back to God. It violates sacred scripture and what the Holy Spirit has taught his church for centuries. You know, God's created a world full of wisdom. And there's a grain to his wisdom, a grain to his reality. And if we go against the grain, we're going to get splinters. There's a reality in every area of our lives. And God's wisdom is demonstrated through it. Biologically, right? There are laws. If we go with the grain, good. If we go against the grain and do outrageous, crazy things to our body, we're going to get hurt. There's a way of thinking relationally. And if we go against what God says relationally we should do, we're going to get hurt. We abuse people and we hurt people and we use people. We're going against the grain. So Proverbs is telling us here in chapter 5 that there's a pattern to sexual reality and when we violate the pattern, we're going to pick up some splinters along the way. So let's look at verses 4 to 14. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. 
She gives no thought to the way of life, and her path wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn away from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end, your life will groan. You will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurred correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. That is a lot of splinters. Psalm is talking about financial scars, loss of reputation, loss of self-respect, a wasted body, feelings of regret. In verses 7 to 8, now listen, my son, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Stay to a path far from her. Do not even go near the door of her house. So question two is, how far can we go? Now this is a question, when I was a youth pastor, I was constantly asked this. How far can we go? And as a single adult, they ask, how far can we go? How close to the edge can I go and not be sinning? So I want to just give this one illustration. I'm a married woman. How far would you like me to go with another man that wasn't my husband? Would groping be okay? A little more than that? So let me ask you this to those of you that are single. Since when do we have a double standard about how we live before Christ? You know, all the things that dating couples do in their relationships sexually are the same things that married people do in their relationships sexually. It's just that we call it foreplay. And single people say, this is great because it's everything but sex. And married people say, this is great because it leads to, it's unto, it is sex. You know, to me, foreplay is like an on-ramp onto the highway. What is the purpose of the on-ramp? To gain speed and to get on that highway, right? You don't get on the on-ramp and then stop. Or, uh, I need to back up, right? There's one purpose for that on-ramp, and that's to get on there. So I want to ask single people, what are you doing driving on the on-ramp? Question three, how do we say no to sexual sin? This is critical here, by valuing sex as much as God does. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 to 20. Drink water from your own cistern, water running from your own well. Should your springs overflow to the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? This is not talking about water rights. 
If you're married, the Holy Spirit is providing for us sexual wisdom here. Water your own lawn. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Now, the sexual imagery here in this passage is debated between commentators. What's the spring? What's the fountain? Most of them agree that the fountain is the picture of the male sexual organ. And the cistern, the well, is the female organ. The point is, the Bible is very sensual and not shy in the approach to marital lovemaking. And encourage us to keep our own lawns green so that they don't fall prey. So that we don't go to the grass is greener on the other side over there because we're not watering our own lawn syndrome. But the problem we have with sex is not that we value it so highly and God doesn't. The problem is is we don't value sex as highly as God does. Now, Okay, sociologists for the last 30 years have been saying relationships are changing, right? We all know that. Relationships in America are changing. Before we were a commitment-based society, friends, neighbors, churches, parents, children, spouses. It was commitment-based relationships. So when the going got tough or our needs didn't get met, we hung in there. But right now we're in what society calls an economic exchange as it relates to sex and as it relates to relationship. We look at sex like something on the shelf that we pull out and I want this. And we make exchanges all the time. Uh, going to church many times is an economical exchange. You meet my needs, I hang here. You don't, I'm out of here. In marriage, you don't meet my needs, I'm out of here. A teenage kid or a 20-year-old kid says, so long as mom gives me free rent, I'm sticking in this relationship, right? A lot of economical exchanges occurring when there used to be commitment-based relationships. And it's a problem that sociologists are very concerned about, and they're not really sure what to do about it. And what we do is we, we come into relationships as consumers. What can I get? And we do this in the area of sex. It's another economical exchange. But the Bible never puts sex in the context of some economical exchange. It's always in the commitment and covenant sphere. Verses 15 to 18. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? He's referring to semen here. Talking about men's parts to come out, right? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. This text is all about sex in the context of real, whole commitment. It's not a product on the shelf. I want that. I don't like that color. I want that pleasure, but I don't want all of it. So what does a whole person commitment mean? It means you've got to be married. If we're not married, we're not giving and sharing our whole self. We're not giving all of our money, all of our time, all of our dreams. There's always this out. 
We're not sharing fully our problems, our failures, our brokenness, our pain. Without vowing total commitment to one another, we're treating sex like a commodity, an economic exchange. Now, last question, and then we're going to be done. Question four, why should we say no to sexual sin? My son, why be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own folly. So why say no to sexual sin? So we can say yes to God. That's the ultimate answer. So we can stay close to his presence. So we can know his favor and his pleasure. And you know, we don't want to hurt other people. And we get in the way of their relationship with God when we get involved with them in ways that are sexually impure. Now, I don't have time, nor is this the platform for me to share my personal sexual journey, but let me say this. We're all on this journey together. We all have failed in one way or another. None of us are immune from failing God in this area. Even if you're over 50, you're not immune. If you're over 60, you're not immune. If you're under 20, you're not immune. And all the ages in between, it is very easy to get entangled, trapped, cross the line for any of us. And so there is no judgment in this sermon. There's mercy. There's an invitation for freedom to own your stuff and get free. So why don't we stand? Lord, I think today's message was a little uncomfortable for those that maybe are too comfortable about the standard in which they're living. And that's good, Lord. I want you to make them feel uncomfortable because I see that as being an invitation to becoming more like you. And Lord, I think that there are some that are feeling really, really uncomfortable and they need some comfort. They need freedom. They've asked before. They've confessed before, and they're still trapped. And, Lord, your heart goes out to them. And I believe, Lord, that you have power to heal and to save and to deliver and to cleanse and to make whole. And, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would comfort those who walk in uncomfort who walk under the shame of their brokenness. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would heal them. That you would have mercy on your church, on this body. That you make uncomfortable those that are comfortable. And that you would comfort those who are really uncomfortable and struggling. That your mercy would come forth. 
But Father, I pray that you would um, just shake us up if we just think we're so complacent and we're so self-righteous and we're really cool and we don't have any of those problems. We don't do any of those things. We never have. We never will. Father, I just pray for your mercy to, to let them see, Father, that they still need your empowering presence. Evil one's always looking for an opportunity to bring us down. Now, in the name of the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for every sin, and where Paul says, such were some of you, I pray now for freedom. From freedom from sexual patterns and hooks that you're involved in, that you struggle with, that you would find your God and the power of the Holy Spirit coming to set you free. Amen. Well, I would imagine it would be a little hard to come forward to get prayer this morning. But so what? Right? I've had problems. I didn't confess them to you all, but I've already confessed them. <laughs> I've already gotten free. I've gone through freedom in Christ and social healing and uh, shared things with my husband along the way. I mean, just confessing, repenting, getting inner healing, deliverance is what is the train that will bring you to a place of freedom. So start this morning. So if there are leaders in our church that feel like, you would like to minister to people in that way. Would you come forward and uh, you say, you know, I, I feel like God has given me some level of victory in this area. I'd like to come forward. Uh, I'd like to come forward to pray. And for today, if you're a female, I'd like you to go to a female only. And if you're a male, I'd like you to go to a male only. Okay, don't, don't mix that. So we just have two people that want to pray. Thank you. These people are going to be gentle and merciful. They have their own story. They're not here to judge. They're here to heal. And so normally we have other kinds of prayer things happening. And, but for this morning, I, I just like this to be what we're praying about. And so if you're not going to get prayer... You can still visit and mingle, but let's do it on the other side of the curtain so these people have some sense of privacy, okay? And um, on Wednesday nights also, we have what's called so-so ministry. Cindy, you raise your hand. And she has teams of people. Good, I'll let you share in just a second. Um, that could, uh, you can make an appointment with her t- to get more prayer and healing. So go ahead, Brennan. Hello. So um, uh, I just want to share because... I think maybe there, this is a tender thing and, and could be embarrassing. You don't want to come up. But I know from my own journey that I had a very significant uh, uh, moment with God when I learned to bring him into the deep places, even in the, in, even in the moment of sin. So that is my encouragement if, you feel that you can't come up here. At least let God, because I know there's that that 
part where you feel trapped. And I just want to let you know that God has the mercy. I think the, the word mercy the, the, in worship, and I think it was almost your final word in the sermon, uh, is very significant. Just rely on that, if nothing else. And if you can, come up. Any other words? I do have one other word. Do you have one, Randy? Um, I think there's some of you here that are feeling tremendous burden for uh, loved ones that are trapped in this regard. And I'd like to invite you also to come forward. This is not to cover up that you need help, right? Okay, this is you also feel this burden because there is a place in Scripture where people stand in the gap for others and weep for their nation, for their city, for their family. And that is really a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do. So if that's you too, you come on up, okay? All right. Uh, Service is dismissed. And um, please be sensitive to those who might come forward so we can pray um, caringly for them. I love you all. We'll see you next week.